Tonight's scripture reading will be coming from Psalm chapter 37, verses 1 through 4. Again, that's Psalms 37, 1 through 4. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell on the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It was a hot, sultry, humid day. The young stranger and his friends had been walking for several hours in the hot Palestinian sun. Now he sat down by a well while his friends went to find a place that they could buy some food. A solitary figure, a woman carrying a water pot, approached. Her sandaled feet scuffed little puffs of dust above her ankles as she walked. At first, neither one of them spoke, although they were both very much aware of the presence of each other. The young stranger broke the silence with a request, give me a drink. And the conversation that followed radically changed not only the life, but the lifestyle of that woman. You can read all about that, of course, in John, the fourth chapter. Afterward, that text tells us that she was so excited that she ran back to her village and forgot her water pot, left it behind. Once there, she shared the news of her friends and neighbors of, of what she had learned. And a whole group started out to see this man who went by the name of Jesus. And when they were still some distance away, he and his friends could see them. They could hear their excited voices as they approached. It was then that Jesus says to his followers, here's what I want you to do. Lift up your eyes and look into the fields for they're white already unto harvest. Verse 35 of John chapter 4. He was, in effect, trying to correct their vision. If he begins by saying, lift up your eyes, that means that they've been setting their sights far too low for far too long. And so he wanted them to elevate their vision. He wanted them to look beyond the surface and to catch hold of a dream. He wanted them to see what could happen. And he knew that so much depended on how they chose to look at things. And I believe that's why the opening statement was, lift up your eyes. It's possible that Jesus' disciples saw only a band of people that would further delay their meal, saw them as a distraction at best, as an inconvenience perhaps as worse, but Jesus, Jesus saw something else. He saw the beginning of kingdom work in Samaria, and when this woman went back to her hometown, she began to spread the word, and that really is exactly what took place. I want to suggest several things for your consideration tonight, beginning with the fact that success always begins with a dream. You might find it interesting to do a word study in the Bible on the subject or the word specifically, dream. You know that Joseph was a man who was accused by his own brothers of being a dreamer. But if you've read the rest of that story, the entirety of that account of Joseph's great life, you know that that, in fact, although it was prophetic, was not a bad thing at all. He had a dream that his brothers did not share, but it was a godly dream. It was an, a vision, as it were, of what God could do in his life in a powerful way if he chose to follow him. The first essential step, I believe, in any worthwhile endeavor is to visualize the outcome. 
There's actually a name for that. That's called positive imaging, not imagining, but positive imaging, where you get an image of your mind of, of the end result of what you want to accomplish. And that can be done on a very personal, individual basis. It can be done as a church, as a congregation of God's people. You have to see the results in your mind before you begin. Norman Vincent Peale is the one who said you've got to first see it in your heart before you will ever hold it in your hand. Said another way, what the mind of man can conceive and the heart of man can believe, man can achieve. And that really is true. And that isn't a testament to our own industriousness. It isn't really a testament to our own abilities. It's a testament to the fact that God can make all of those things possible for us if first we will lift up our eyes and get that vision, catch a glimpse of that dream that God wants all of us to share. Success success begins with that dream before it will ever become a reality. And we need to know that right up front. If you go back and look at the Old Testament history, you'll see that probably the bleakest point in Israel's history in the Old Testament was the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. You know that there were several prophecies of that even in the New Testament if you read Matthew chapter 24. And you know that took place around AD 70. King Nebuchadnezzar led the siege back, the first destruction of Jerusalem as it were, led the siege and the beautiful holy city was leveled. The magnificent temple... And the stately walls were destroyed, and the inhabitants were carried away into slavery. It wasn't until generations later when the Jews were allowed to return, and for over 80 years after they returned, there was absolutely no movement in the rebuilding of the walls. The walls continued to lay in ruins. And then Nehemiah came along. If you've read the book that bears his name, you know what Nehemiah's dream was. He certainly had a dream. At first, it was his own personal dream. Someone says that one of the definitions of effective leadership is when the leadership can make their dream the dream of the people that they lead. And I think that Nehemiah was a perfect classic example of that happening. He, he first went to Jerusalem and he surveyed the situation. And that obviously just makes good sense. You want to see what there is to be accomplished. You need to see how the project needs to be done. You need to see what the first step is in that project. And, and the Jews for years, think about that, had only seen ruins. Again, the city walls had, had lain in ruins for 80 years. That means that a whole generation had passed. There were some that were born, lived, and died and never saw the walls of Jerusalem anywhere except laying flat on the ground. They probably stepped over the rubble in their daily activities. Most of them probably complained at some point about the litter and having to walk around all of that mess. And Nehemiah saw something different. In his mind, he saw the rebuilt walls once again stately and fortified. The Old Testament book that bears his name is the story of his valiant rebuilding of the walls against incredible odds. And in an amazing eight weeks... The Bible specifies it took only 52 days to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. All of that I remind you because one man dared to dream. I want to submit in the second place that there are five steps for that kind of spiritual success. I believe these steps work in any area of life, but our our interest tonight is spiritual. And so when we're talking about what God will, will accomplish and can accomplish in our own lives individually... And collectively, as a body of people, I believe that there are five elements that are absolutely critical. You can't get started in any worthwhile endeavor without a dream. 
In fact, that's the essential first step in the five-step process that leads to success in any life project. The process, then, is to visualize, organize, deputize, supervise, and analyze. If you were trying to write that down, don't worry. If you didn't get all of them, we're going to go back over them again. The first step is to visualize. We've already talked about that a little bit, but this is the first step in in the process of, of, of buying into a dream. It's getting a clear picture in your mind of what success will look like. Now, I know that sounds simple, but that's a difficult thing. I've talked to enough people over the years who will acknowledge that it's very difficult for them to even envision what it's like to be where they want to be spiritually and to be that mature, full-grown, thoroughly furnished Christian that Paul speaks about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. Sometimes it's beyond their ability to even conceive of. And, and folks, if we can't conceive of the image of what we want to be, what God wants us to be, then it's going to be very difficult to ever get to that end result. So first of all, we need to know where we're going or else you will never know when and if you get there. As someone says, you can't reach a goal that you don't have any more than you can come back from a place you've never been. And if you uh, don't know where you're going, how will you know once you get there? I think I've told you the story a few times of... And I, and I love this story because it came from a friend of mine, Brother Jerry Barber, who talked about one of his elders when he was preaching for the Central Church over in Dalton, Georgia, was traveling one day on I-75 north of Atlanta when he saw a man standing on the side of the interstate. Of course, you're not supposed to be a pedestrian on the interstate, but here was this man close to an exit ramp, and I suppose he figured he could run away if he saw uh, a, a traffic cop coming. But anyway, he, he was holding up that sign that you've seen, a cardboard sign, handmade, and it usually has a destination. You know, I'm heading to Pensacola or whatever and, and trying to hit your ride. This sign simply said, anywhere. And the elder said on reflection later, I did not stop and pick him up because I figured he was already there. That really is true, isn't it? If you don't have anything, a more specific destination in mind, if you don't have an image of what it is that you want to be and what you want to be doing with your life, then you're already there. Because that's just anywhere. So first of all, we've got to to visualize. We've got to get a glimpse of what God wants every one of us to be. And then the second thing we need to do is to begin to organize. Chart a course that will lead you from where you are to your dream, to where you want to be. Develop a strategy that will help you to be able to reach that goal. And I know that we've talked about that some already in this new year. But usually when the first of the year rolls around and people begin to make new goals for themselves and new resolutions... Oftentimes, that's all it is. It's just a daydream. Here's what I would like to do or be, or here's what I would like to look like. But then there's no real attempt to organize, to develop, to formulate a plan that will be able to get you to your end result. So we have to develop that strategy. And when that's done properly, it brings a feeling of of satisfaction and gratification and confidence. And you can live every day with that kind of of satisfaction because you know that even though you may not have reached your goal yet, you're still doing something constructive every day of your life that is getting you closer and closer to your end result. You can be satisfied with not even being at your destination as long as you know that you're on your way. So the second thing we need to do is organize. Thirdly, we need to deputize. That is recruit any others needed to help you reach your goal. I've had this conversation dozens of times in my preaching life. I've talked to someone who has some sin problem. 
And it may be something that, that, that's even affecting their marriage if they happen to be married. And, and you'll find that that's typically true. Whenever there's sin in a person's life, it will affect not only, obviously, our relationship with God, but our relationship with other people, and, and primarily the people that we're closest to. And so when that conversation begins to unfold and to develop, you soon learn that that person has, has, real, has a real difficulty overcoming and, and, and facing and defeating whatever the temptation is that they're dealing with. And oftentimes what I will recommend, recommend is an accountability partner. That is, you need to find someone. Sometimes it's not your husband or wife. That's not always the best idea, to find someone that will help you and hold you accountable whenever you get to the point of temptation in your life. You can call them, you can text them, or whatever, but you can communicate and you can tell them that you're, you're, you're on hard times right now, you're dealing with a very heavy temptation, and that person will help hold you accountable. This is a process that we call delegation. And I believe that I've said a number, enough times from this pulpit that God had a real plan in mind when he planned his church. Because essentially and most fundamentally, Christianity is a one-on-one relationship to God. I believe that we would all agree with that. Romans 14, 12 says every one of us will give an account of ourselves before God. So we're going to all stand before God as if no one else ever existed. But the reality is we need each other. God put us in the church so that we've got spiritual brothers and sisters who are there not only to hold us accountable if that's what we've asked them to do, but will also help us and strengthen us and edify us and to give us that impetus on a day-to-day basis that will help each of us to get to where we're wanting to go, and that's ultimately to heaven. But that delegation is so important, and sometimes we, we want to do it all, and we want to be the Lone Ranger. We want to be John Wayne riding successfully out into the sunset all by ourselves, and God says, that's not the way you're wired. That's not the, way, that's not the plan that I have for you. We, we need to delegate some of this in our lives. If you don't believe that, turn back sometime when you've got a little bit of time, and I just want to reference this. We don't have time to read it tonight, to Exodus chapter 18, and begin with verse 13 and read down to verse 24. And what's happening is that Moses is, of course, as the leader of the Israelites, judging the people. And the Bible says in that text there in Exodus chapter 18 that the people are coming before Moses. They are lining up, and he is judging. That just means he's making decisions about what they ought to do. He's making judgments maybe about mistakes that they have done, giving, formulating some alternatives about things perhaps that they can do from that point forward. But he's real busy doing that. In fact, the Bible says he's doing it from early morning to late at night. People are just continuing to line up. Well, he had a father-in-law, Jethro. And may I say parenthetically, if you've got a good father-in-law, listen to him. Listen to his counsel. And Jethro said to Moses, the thing that you do is not good. And our first reaction when you read that verse is to say, well, it's, a very, it's very easy for a father-in-law to criticize a son-in-law. But Jethro is not intending to criticize him in a destructive way. He's just saying, this is not good for you, and this is not good for the people. This is not a healthy situation. And so he actually had a plan in mind, and that was the organization level. And he told Moses, here's what you need to do. Here's, here's the best way to work that plan. And, and he talked about dividing the people up into thousands and hundreds and fifties, and you'll have men that will help you to, to, to do what you're doing. You're carrying this workload all by yourself. What 
what you need to do is to deputize. You need to delegate in order to be able to do God's work more effectively. If nothing else, tell others about your goal so that they will hold you to it. That's what we mean by deputize. And then fourth, we need to supervise. Make sure that all the elements of the strategy that you've developed are proceeding properly. That is, it's not just, uh, here's, I'm going to get this ball rolling, and it will roll all by itself. No, there isn't any ball in the world. There's no goal in the world that you can set that will be self-perpetuating. You're going to constantly have to stay on yourself. You're going to have to constantly make adjustments as needed in the course of time. Seldom does anyone, I know this is tremendously profound, so you might want to write this down somewhere, Seldom does anyone ever arrive at the destination without turning the steering wheel. Have you noticed that? In fact, you can't get out of this parking lot without turning your steering wheel a number of times as you're driving your car or your truck out of here. And that just means that in any course in life, there have to be some adjustments. You have to, you see a curve coming, you see an obstacle in the way, and you have to make those adjustments. And so making adjustments in course and direction is going to be par for the course. And then fifth, we need to analyze. We need to always be having, whether you've reached or whether you've missed the goal that you have set for yourself, it's good to look over the process for your own enlightenment. Most successes, and this isn't Bible, this is just Randy, and I note that as such. But this is my judgment, my observation, as well as my own personal experience. Most successes in life come with plan B. After carefully learning from the mistakes that you made in plan A. And so if plan A doesn't work out, don't get discouraged. Don't say, well, I might as well give up and never set another goal. Never attempt to do anything, accomplish anything really significant for the Lord. No, you just need to learn from the failures of plan A and then go with plan B because most of life is lived according to plan B. Now, Once again, I want to reiterate the the thesis of this very lesson, and that is to appreciate the fact that biblically speaking and experientially speaking, there is power in a dream. And when the Bible talks about men and women who had dreams, sometimes these were miraculous visions, and sometimes it was just a dream like you and I would, would describe in our own vernacular when someone has a dream for their life. Many folks know what it's like to plant a vegetable garden in the spring. And if any of you in this audience tonight are serious gardeners, and if you've got any kind of significant garden plot that you set out in the spring, then you know that what I'm about to say is absolutely true. A garden is a thing of beauty and a job forever. It looks wonderful when it's on someone else's property. But you know if you've ever attempted to grow a garden... There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears involved in having a successful garden. It's a lot of work. There's the plowing and the digging and the laying out of the rows. There's the planting, the fertilizing. There's the irrigating. But to to most people, it's a joy or they wouldn't do it. The key is, listen carefully, the key is when you drop a seed into the ground, you don't see a seed. You see corn and okra and squash. You see the end result. In fact, if you've got a good imagination, you can actually see it already cooked sitting on your dining room table. You see those things as mature, healthy, and delicious. And that is a delightful image in your mind that motivates even the casual gardener not only to do the work, but then to also enjoy it immensely. You can learn to enjoy the process because you are so locked in on the end result. And that's another way of saying that there is power inherent in a dream. Also, I've made this observation. Some people do well in college and others do not. 
And sometimes people do poorly in college and then come back and take another run at it and do well the second time. Here's what I mean by that. Because more important than aptitude or IQ is the dream that you have in your heart. Zig Ziglar is the one who is famed for saying it's attitude and not aptitude that determines your altitude. I believe he's exactly right about that. I've known more of more than one person who's gone to college either to flunk out or to come very close to doing so. And then in some of those cases, they, they get married, say, and they work for a while at an entry-level job, and then they decide, I'm going to go back to college. I'm going to give it another run. This time, they do extremely well. I've, I've even known people who flunked out or came close the first time, come back and graduate at the top of their class. Let me ask you the simple question. What's changed? It's not their IQ. It's the same as it ever was. What's changed is their dream. And when their dream changes, then their whole set of motivations change as well. Now they're on their way to a productive and a successful career. Now they have a completely way, different way of looking at things. Now they can understand why Jesus told his disciples, lift up your eyes and, and look unto the fields. We need to correct our vision spiritually and in every area of life in order to be able to do what God would have us to accomplish. Mel Weldon is a, a name that probably doesn't mean anything to you, but he does a lot of counseling with people out in the Bay Area of the West Coast in California where he lives. And one of his techniques is to ask someone who comes to his, his office asking for counsel, well, not asking, paying for his counsel, uh, it, it, and they're discouraged, and so they really have no real direction in life, don't know what they need to do next, is to ask them this very simple question, what would you like to be like? Does that make sense? What would you like to be like? If you're unhappy with your life now, then what would you envision for yourself? How, do you, how would you see yourself if you were a successful person and the kind of person that you really want to be most of all in, in the depths of your heart? And when he does that, when he says, what would you like to be like? And the person then formulates the response and tells him what they would like to be like. He turns and he types that on back when they had typewriters. Y'all remember those? And he types that on a prescription pad, and then he tears the pad off or the, the top uh, layer of the pad, and he hands it to them as a prescription. And he says, I want you to read that three times a day for the next, next month, and then come back, and we'll talk again. You see, Mel is wise enough to be aware that if you keep a dream before you, it will eventually be internalized into your subconscious mind. It will help you to lift up your eyes. It will help you change the direction of your gaze to see what you're locked in on or what you should be locked in on. Marcus Aurelius said a man's life is what his thoughts make of him. And the Bible certainly verifies that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, Proverbs 23, verse 7. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, a man is what he thinks about all day long. So what goes into our minds is what eventually comes out in action. Now that's Bible. Mark 7, verses 18 through 23, and Proverbs 23, 7, I just referenced, are passages that indicate how important it is that, that we make sure that we're feeding our minds the right things or else we shouldn't be surprised when the right attitudes and actions are reflected in our, in our lives. Our entire direction of life depends on where we have chosen to focus. I believe that's one of the reasons why in Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 3, Paul said, set your minds, your affections, your aspirations on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul said the number one criteria, the number one requirement for effective 
Christian discipleship is to start thinking in heavenly terms. Don't just think about what will make you successful for this life. Think about what God wants you to be doing with your life and how that you can be of service in his kingdom. And that means that all of those things are within our control because we can control what we think about. That's what Paul said in Philippians 4.8. The monumental text from the Bible that states this principle clearly, I think, is from Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 3.18, I've referenced this a number of times, but here one more time because it's germane to this subject. He said, but we all. Who are you talking about, Paul? Talking about everyone who shares the faith that I have. All of us Christians, brothers and sisters in God's forever family, we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image day by day. Paul was telling those people 2,000 years ago, that what you fix your eyes on, what you focus on, what you think about, what you allow, no, not allow, what you cause, what you determine to be the dominating thoughts of your life is what your life is going to be. And if you fixed your eyes on Jesus, as we have on the banners on the wall, if that really is your magnificent obsession, if you fixed your mind, your life, your aspirations all around what Jesus would have you to be doing in your life, that's going to be reflected on a daily basis as well. The power inherent in a dream is both positive and negative. We'll be transformed into any image that we set before us. And that's why pornography and sleazy television is so bad and why good positive dreams and thinking and studying God's word and, and thinking about holy and healthy things is so good because we're feeding our minds and what we feed our minds, as the old boy said, whatever is in the water is going to come out in the well. Whatever is in our hearts, what we feed our hearts is going to be reflected daily in our lives and actions. So desire is, is absolutely required. To bring this dream to reality, we need to desire it, and desire is the part of the dream that has the real power. And I want to end with that thought. How much do you want it? Without the desire to, uh, to actuate a dream, then it is nothing more than a daydream. And there are people who would tell you, if you were to ask them, do you have any life goals, would reply, yes. But to them, a goal is... Nothing more, if you, if you ask and inquire in, in depth about what they mean by that, you will soon find out that they don't have really a goal at all. They have a daydream. You know, I'd like to be rich. I would like to live in this kind of house. I'd like to have that kind of job or whatever. But there's no tangible plan to get them to that place. Someone says that goals are simply daydreams that are being acted upon. But unless you act on them, if you don't put a plan in place and then actuate the plan, then it's nothing more than a daydream. Andrew Carnegie said a person can succeed at almost anything for which he has unlimited desire and enthusiasm. And that's right. And again, that can be for either good or bad. But just because something is unquestionably best for us doesn't necessarily mean that we have the sufficient desire to bring it about. Jesus, on one occasion, and you can... If you had your Bible open to John 4, flip over one page to John chapter 5. Very interesting encounter that Jesus had with a man who had been sick for, get this, 38 years. I would call that a chronic illness, wouldn't you? I mean, I, I've talked to people this, uh, this winter who's had the flu or have had upper respiratory infections one after the other. And after, you know, a few weeks of that, that gets really, really old. Can you imagine being ill 
And I mean seriously ill for 38 years. That's what makes this encounter with Jesus, I think, so tremendously interesting. Because he, he asked the man an, an unusual question. Now, he's going, he's going to heal him. And that's what happens as, as all of this begins to unfold. But he came across the man who'd been sick for 38 years. One would naturally assume that if uh, anyone were to ask this man, what, what, what would you like to be? He probably would respond, I would like to be well. I would like to get rid of this infirmity, this disease, or whatever. But in John 5 and verse 6, the first question, in fact, the only question that Jesus asked this man is this question. And no, this is not an IQ test. I believe Jesus wanted to hear this man actually formulate this response. His question was, do you want to be made well? You see, because Jesus knows something about us that we don't know about ourselves. He knows how important it is that we really desire something. I mean, really, really, how badly do you want this is in essence what Jesus was asking that man. So in the Lord's estimation, the sick man's desire was monumentally important. Once there was a man, you've heard the story, please don't stop me, I want to hear it again. There was a man walking through a graveyard, he was somewhat uneasy, trying to put on a brave face because it was so dark you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, and so he didn't see the freshly dug grave and he stumbled into it. Frantic, he began clawing at the sides of the grave to get out, but he was unable to do so. All he did was just pull dirt down on him and so he finally regained his control a little bit and thought, I'll just sit here quietly. And when they come tomorrow to use this grave, somebody can just lift me out. However, another man more skittish than the first came along and stumbled into the same grave. Not knowing that there was anyone else in the grave, he began clawing at the sides of the grave, trying to get out just like the first man had done. Suddenly he heard a voice from the dark corner of the grave said, you can't get out of here that way. But you know what? He was wrong. He did. Because there's real power in real desire. I like the story of the hunter who was being chased by an angry bear. The bear was getting closer and closer and he could feel its hot breath on his neck. And there was only one tree near the man's flight path. And that tree had only one limb and it was about 20 feet off the ground. The hunter knew it was only his only chance. So when he got to the tree, he jumped with all of his might and he missed the limb. But he caught it on the way down. Because there is real power and real desire. Why are some people able to keep on a regular exercise program and others aren't? The real difference is the level of desire. Some people not only see the need more clearly, but also they want the end results more intensely. Andrea knew that she should quit smoking. She was a registered nurse. She was very much aware of all the medical information, all the literature in fact, she had given that to some of her patients who were smokers. And all of that, those findings linked the, all the different diseases and maladies and shortness of life that can result from smoking. She tried several times, but still she was unable to quit. She was unable, that is, until one day when her doc, doctor sat her down in his office and said, we have found cancerous cell tissues in your lungs. Suddenly, guess what? She was able to quit very easily because her motivation, her desire level had changed. Now you couldn't force her to smoke a cigarette. What made the difference was her desire. The Bible says in our text, Psalm 37 and verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We need to be willing to dream, folks. 
We need to plan with faith. We need to dream with courage. It is not necessary to settle for mediocrity in any area of our lives. The Apostle Paul had the right spirit when he said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13. And furthermore, we must not dream and plan based only on the past because if we do that, then we'll never grow beyond it. We'll keep on repeating the mistakes of the past. Remember, until something changes, everything stays the same. May I repeat that insightful remark? Until something changes, everything stays the same. I'm asking you tonight, do you want to change your life? Do you want to change the spiritual direction of your life? So we need to dare to dream big dreams, and we need to then act on them. An unknown, insightful author wrote the following four lines. Little and great is man. Great if he will, or if he will, a pygmy still. For what he will, he can. You'll not find a Bible verse after that, but that's Bible because that's what God says is true of every one of us. You can't grow any bigger than your dreams. So don't be afraid to dream big dreams and then to keep those dreams constantly before you. I don't know where it is that you want to go with your life. I had a conversation with a man in his 60s, not maybe a couple of weeks ago, and uh, jokingly, I think it was jokingly, he said, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up, you know, and and sometimes we're like that. I don't know what everybody in this audience, what you plan to do and what you want to do with your life, but I do know what the first step is. It's the same advice that Jesus gave his disciples in the long ago. It's to lift up your eyes, lift up your eyes, correct your vision, focus your life, your attention and your heart on things above. Improve your vision, dream your dream, and then you'll be able to live the unlimited possibilities that God says is in store for every one of his people. If you're not a child of God tonight, if you're not one of his people, you can be before we leave this place. Your faith prompts you to repent of all past sins, determine to live your life the way God would have you to live it from this day forward. Confess your faith that Jesus is God's son and be baptized to have all of your past mistakes washed away, and you can start over tonight, beginning right now, while we stand and while we sing.